Well, I trust you have your Bibles handy. Please take them and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to continue looking to God's Word as a way to give perspective and understanding and uh, theological equilibrium during this time of really a mass trial that everyone is facing together. I heard Jay Adams say years ago that preaching is really nothing more or less than mass counseling. And by that, he meant that when you open God's Word, it's like God is supernaturally counseling every person under the hearing of it. That's certainly the case with this text and this sermon this morning. I can only tell you what a what a soul-encouraging, um, uh, enriching, comforting passage this has been to me in studying it this week. Title for today is God's Antidote for a Troubled Soul. God's Antidote for a Troubled Soul. We're going to take a bigger section of Scripture than normal, and normally we do, and really it's because it's one unit if you stitch it all together. And we're going to take some highlights. We're not going to dive deep. It's more going to be like a, a snorkel than a scuba tank today. Let me read that passage just so it is set freshly in our mind. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice, literally be glad in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord, the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if There is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me before you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from lack or want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. No generation of people to ever inhabit this planet has been blessed with the medical advances that we all enjoy. One of the most helpful blessings of this age is the cardiovascular nuclear stress test. Stress test for short, nuclear stress test, a heart stress test. This is a test that measures the functionality, the health of a heart. But think for a moment about the name of this test and what it implies. It is a stress test. 
By definition, that means that to see if a person's heart has been compromised, is functioning in a healthy way, the heart must be put under stress, literally the stress of exercise, to see how it performs. Stress test uses a radioactive dye and an imaging machine to create pictures of the heart showing the blood flow in a normal resting uh, place. And then the procedure measures the flow while you're in exercise mode. Then those two images are compared. Typically you're walking or jogging on a treadmill to get your heart rate up to speed. And then they compare the resting and the exercise images to see what the flow looks like in, around, and through the heart. See if, if there's a problem, if everything's okay. Now think of this carefully. In order to reveal the health of your physical heart, doctors put your heart muscle under intentional stress to assess its strength. A cardiovascular nuclear stress test is a fitting analogy of any trial and specifically the trial that we all find ourselves in with the coronavirus. Every trial is a stressful situation and it need not be that way in the life of a believer. Think of this carefully. In order to reveal the health of your soul, our heavenly Father, our caring, loving heavenly Father will put our lives under stress to assess the strength and health of our souls. The man on the treadmill being stressed to the point of exhaustion will not feel good about the test. He won't feel good during the test. The test itself is unpleasant, uncomfortable. The test can be painful. By definition, it is stressful. But he understands as he puts stress on his heart on that treadmill that the doctor is doing this to him and he willingly submits to him for a specific purpose and that's to test his heart and assess its health. Similarly, every Christian, each Christian, in any and all of our trials, big or small, individual or societal, are being graciously put under the stresses of God that frankly don't feel good. They're uncomfortable, painful, unpleasant. And yet, if we look carefully at the fact that God is doing this to assess the health of our souls, we can find redemptive purposes. God puts us, his children, under stress in the crucible of trials to test our faith, to test our theology, to reveal what we really believe. He wants us to see what we believe so that we can address any weaknesses, sure up any, any weaknesses, and, and be better in our thinking. Now, most everyone is familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Let me read that for you from the New American Standard. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Greek word for temptation is the exact same Greek word that we translate trial. Let me read that again with the alternate translation. No trial 
has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. No one's trials are any worse than anyone else on the planet has ever experienced. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to experience any trial beyond what you are able, but with the trial will provide the way of escape, which sounds like maybe out of the trial, but it's not. The last phrase says, so that you will be able to endure it. Crises like the one we're facing with the lockdown from the coronavirus bring out the best and the worst in all of us. They also reveal the best and the worst theological trusts. They show us what we truly believe in our heart. Be aware of this. Every day and every hour of this pandemic trial, you are demonstrating what you believe about God's power, what you believe about his sovereignty, what you hold about his character. You're also discovering what you truly believe. And the key for all of us is to become aware of the results of God's spiritual stress test in this trial and respond appropriately. Do you see what you believe? The question before us all in these days is, how can we endure it? Paul said that these trials come, these temptations, trials can become temptations. How can we endure them where God gives us the way of escape so that we can respond rightly and appropriately and even redemptively in the middle of a trial, either personal or, or societal? Well, I think in the book of Philippians, we have our answer. Here in the fourth chapter of Philippians, Paul gives us a sure remedy, a sufficient first aid kit for our souls. How can we endure this trial? How can we endure every trial? Well, in Philippians 4, verses 4 to 14, we find a sure remedy for the soul, a sure remedy for a troubled soul And just to give you a head start, there's going to be six parts of this prescription. This is going to be fast and and, and very furious as we go through this. Six parts of this prescription, a sure remedy for a troubled soul. I think if all of us are, are honest with ourselves, honest with our families, honest with our spouses, honest with our friends, we see a great degree of of anxiety in and around us. We feel unsettled. We we uh well, all we need to do is watch the evening news, or it's actually 24-hour news at this point. And there are plenty of reasons to be uncertain. How do we respond to that as a Christian? How can we counsel ourselves, receive spiritual wisdom and insight in a way that will navigate through this time in a way that brings God glory and that we are actually beneficiaries of his good purposes and see growth. Well, I think Paul outlines six parts of the sure remedy for a troubled soul in these passages. The first is in verse four. Be glad, be glad. This seems so counterintuitive. And if this weren't in the word of God, I would feel uncomfortable looking at anyone in the face with any degree of integrity in the middle of this worldwide trial and saying, be glad. And yet that's where Paul starts. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, as a repetition, he says, I will say rejoice. This is a sweeping and comprehensive command. 
It's really the first of five commands, five imperatives that Paul outlines in these verses. And then at the end, he gives a personal anecdote and experience that will be our sixth uh, part of this antidote. He sets the angle, though, with our thinking in this first command. Rejoice. He says it twice. Again, I say rejoice. Be glad. Cairo, it means be happy. Be delighted. Be glad. Now, you might say, well, that makes sense if you just uh, received a wonderful gift, if you're with your family, if there is no pressing trial. But look at what he says. Rejoice in the Lord. What's the next word? Always. I looked up the Greek word always, pantote, and you know what that means? Always. (laughs) All the time. Comprehensively. There is never a time when a believer cannot find a reason to be glad. This is comprehensive gladness. This is a settled confidence. But there is a qualifier here. If he just said, be glad, again I say be glad, rejoice, rejoice, and didn't have in the middle of this verse what is our anchor point, none of this would, 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 would make sense. It would have almost no credibility. He says, be glad, rejoice, and then the phrase, in the Lord. Paul does not tell us to be glad because of our circumstances, but rather be glad, find reasons to be glad in the Lord. Now, what does this mean? I broke this down in my own heart. What does it mean to be glad in the Lord? That means the thoughts of God should bring us a sense and level of gladness. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's answering these questions. Who is God? Who is God? He's our creator. He is our sustainer. We know who he is. Secondly, we need to answer the question, what is God like? One of our favorite verses here at Mission Road is is Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and you do good. Speaking to the Lord. What is God like? He is good and he does good. We cannot trust in a sovereign creator unless we know that he is good. A third question I think we should ask is, what has God done? Well, he's given us his son, the death of his own son, to pay for the penalty of our sin. I trust that you understand that. Listen, the wages of sin is death. If the coronavirus does not claim our life, something will someday The wages of sin is death. I was asked this week by someone, do you think the coronavirus is the judgment of God? And my answer was, all death is the judgment of God. It's not if, it's when. I trust that you are ready to meet your almighty creator the moment you close your eyes for the last time on this planet. And the only way to be ready is to have secured faith in the good news, in the gospel that we need a remedy for our sin. We, we, we deserve eternal judgment. And yet God in his kindness, in his, his indescribable, counterintuitive kindness, took the penalty that we deserve, which is death and hell, and he laid that on his sinless son in our place instead of us. And then he gave us his righteousness his right standing before the Father. And to prove that it was true, he rose from the dead. 
He offers that to anyone sitting in a church, sitting in a living room, sitting before a phone, a tablet, a computer, a television. You can receive forgiveness and security for your soul and and lose the fear of death by believing the good news of the gospel. I pray that you have. I pray that you will if you haven't. Romans 8.32 says, He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Remember what God has done. So we ask, who is God? What is God like? What has God done? And a last question that's important, it's why we're here today talking about this passage. What is God doing? What is God doing? God is doing countless things millions of things in this pandemic, but he's also doing thousands and thousands of things in and around and through us. He's working all things for our good, Romans 8, 28 says. He is good, he does good, and he's doing this trial in and around our lives for our good. John Flavel wisely noted, Providence has ordered that condition for you, which is really best for your eternal good, end quote. There's a lot of wisdom there. The trial that you're experiencing now, any trials, it's not just the pandemic that we're facing. There are financial trials. There are emotional trials. There are relational conflicts. There are all sorts of things that are piling up on our souls. But God is in and around and through us to understand his goodness for us. No matter the circumstances, can you stay with King David who said, here I am, let God do to me what seems good to him. It is impossible to rejoice. It is impossible to be glad. It is impossible to find true happiness when things around us seem to be just going the exact opposite direction unless the Lord you're talking about is the God of the Bible. God is in the happiness business. He wants us to be glad, but he tells us that our gladness can always be found and will ultimately only be found in him. If you allow the circumstances around you to shape your emotional stability, you will join the world in panic. If you look to and understand the nature and the work of God, you will find peace, experience peace, you will have confidence, and you'll be glad. You will find reasons in the Lord to be glad that the world doesn't understand. So the first part of a sure remedy for a troubled soul is to be glad. The second is in verse 5, be humble. Be humble. Paul says, let your gentle spirit, your gentleness, your contentment be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, this is a difficult Greek word to translate. The the word that's translated gentle spirit literally means a contented, humble disposition. You're content and you're humble. But you cannot be contented. You cannot be humble. You will not be glad unless you find the anchor point in the last phrase of verse 5. The Lord is near. We, be, we are to be glad in the Lord. And now we find out just a few words later that he is around us. He's near. It's really simple. 
You develop and display a contented, humble spirit because you are impacted and influenced by the Lord's nearness. You do know that the Lord is near, don't you? As a believer, as a Christian, He's never left you. He will never forsake you. He will not leave you as an orphan. He is always with you until the end of the age. Promises from God Himself. And when you feel alone, you're not. The Lord is near. Psalm 139 verses 7 to 12 tell us that God is everywhere all the time, but this is a different kind of nearness. This is the kind of nearness to which only a Christian can lean on. Only a Christian can experience and enjoy this kind of nearness. Do you remember, are you aware that the Lord is near? Or do we forget I think often of that quote by A.W. Tozer who said, in the moment of sin, and worry is a sin, as we'll see in a moment, in the moment of sin, every Christian becomes a temporary atheist. We may say that we believe in God, but we act like he's not there. The presence of the Lord, friends, is a game changer. David wrote in Psalm 16, verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. What a statement. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. He recognized that God was there at his right hand. He set his mind to that presence all day long. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad And my glory rejoices. Doesn't that sound familiar, what Paul was saying? My flesh will also dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, for in your presence is fullness of gladness, of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. That was David's confidence. Asaph, in Psalm 73, verse 28, said, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Think of that. The nearness of God is my good. Exactly what Paul picked up on. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all your works. The sons of Korah in Psalm 46 said, God is our refuge and strength, strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, because of the nearness of God, I will not fear. And then later in the psalm, they say, the Lord of hosts is with with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The nearness of God is our good. You can be content. You can have a public ministry and a private contentment by leaning on, believing, and resting in the fact, the reality, the bedrock fact that God is near There's a humbling fact in that. We're humble because his nearness is what solves our problems, not our own intuition, not our own willpower, not our own efforts. His nearness should humble us and make us content. Thirdly, don't worry. A third part of the sure remedy for God, uh, from God for a troubled soul. Don't worry. 
Sounds so glib. It sounds so trite. It sounds so easy. Don't worry. Paul says very specifically in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Another way of saying that is don't worry about anything. Worrying is, the, is really strangling ourselves with our own problems. It can have consequences we don't even see, physical consequences, headaches, neck pains, ulcers, stomach aches, loss of appetite, overeating, many other ailments. Worry affects our thinking, our appetites, our digestion, even our coordination. Worry, though, listen, worrying is a choice. Just as refusing to worry is also a choice. Do you remember the scene with Martha and Mary? Uh, they're preparing uh, a meal for the Lord uh, before his um, coming suffering. The Lord answered and says to Martha, who was worried because Mary was attending to the Lord and she was attending to the meal and the dishes. Mary says, uh, Martha rather, uh, the Lord says to Martha rather, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Does that sound like most of us in this time? You are so worried and so bothered by so many things. Again, Luke 10, verse 41. But only one thing is necessary. Listen to this. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. When you look at those words, he is, Jesus is making very clear, Martha, you are choosing to worry. Mary has chosen not to worry. Someone has said that worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained, end quote. Worry can zap your joy. Worry can zap your strength. Worry can demolish your testimony. Haddon Robinson said this. These are incredible words. What worries you, masters you. What worries you, masters you. Now, the Lord Jesus understood this. He knew this very well. In his most famous sermon, in fact, the sermon for which we have the most data about was the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 6, verse 25, part of that sermon, the core, the heart of the sermon, Jesus says this. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Is that clear? Do not be worried about your life. But then he gets specific as to what you will eat, what you will drink, for, uh, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body and clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than the birds? And who of you, by being worried, listen to this, can add a single hour to his life? 
Why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field. They, they do not toil, they, they don't spin, yet I tell you that Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like none of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He says it again now. Do not worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? Listen to this comparison. For the Gentiles, the unbelievers, eagerly seek all these things, but your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, And all these things, our necessities of life, will be added to you. So, and he closes by saying this, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. His half-brother James would say the same thing in James 5. Why are you worried about tomorrow when today has the things that you need to be responsibly dealing with? Jesus says three times in that times in that paragraph don't worry don't worry don't worry and when the lord tells us not to do something to do it is sin can we say it as plainly as possible worrying is not only a sin anxiety and worry are deep spiritual conditions that need to be addressed need to be repented of need to be changed The practicality of Jesus is as stunning as it is refreshing. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, verse 32 of Matthew 6 says. Spiritually, worrying is just wrong thinking, the mind, and wrong feeling in the heart. Remember, God has never been surprised by any of our trials. God is ever aware of our cares and concerns and our needs. God expects us as his children to respond to this pandemic differently than the Gentiles do, than the world does. How? How can we be glad? How can we not worry leads us to number four. Well, the first answer is we pray purposefully. We pray purposefully. Be anxious for nothing, and then that massively weighted, aversive word, but, but, be anxious for nothing, but instead of that, in contrast to worry, in Everything by prayer and supplication with thankfulness, thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Can, can I just make it as simple as possible? Kids, I know a lot of you are watching around, around the, 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 the monitor. Let, let me make it really simple. This is what Paul is saying. Prayer cures anxiety. Prayer cures anxiety. One of the things we all instinctively do when we're troubled about something is we reach out to someone to talk to. And we should. 
God has given us those who can bear our burdens with us. God has given us friends and other believers, other, others of his, his, his children to, to bear our burdens, to talk about things, to give us wise counsel. Wonderful, don't ever turn away from that yet. How often do we find ourselves when we need counsel, want counsel, want an ear to listen to, just don't know what to do, just need some advice, need some counsel? How often do we first pray? Comprehensive word again, in everything by prayer, everything. Don't miss the connection between verse 5 and verse 6. Because God is near, he is always, always, always ready, willing, and desirous to talk with us and hear us talk with him. He's near. The everything mentioned here in the context is related to the very things that we are tempted to worry about. You can translate this and interpret this, but in everything that worries you, take it to God in prayer. By prayer, simple word for talking to God. Supplication, simple word for requesting things of God. And then he adds, with thanksgiving. Wow, is that a a perspective changer. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Notice that prayer is to be offered with thanksgiving. Paul said almost the exact same thing to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always, same word, be glad. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything, give thanks. It's even deeper than that. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. This is a deeper level. This is not just thankfulness. This is thankfulness for the very trial that brings us worry. Because, remember back to the stress test. If we have a biblical understanding, then we can see and know and have confidence that God is doing things in us, for us, about us, with us. We can be thankful for that. Does that mean we can be thankful for the coronavirus. Giving thanks for all things. Yes. Not for the sickness that it causes, not for the disease, disease, disease that it is, not, not for the death that it's visiting on unsuspecting. We can be thankful that this is doing things in us to make us more aware of his nearness and more dependent on his sufficiency. Again, only a Christian can pray like this. We are thankful people. Can I just tell you, I'm I'm thankful for some of the things that this virus has already done in in my family. None of us have contracted it. Um, Just a few nights ago, we had perhaps the sweetest few moments of prayer I can remember uh, with, uh, with two of my sons who were living at home and my wife and me. Praise God that that brought us to our knees. Praise God that it, again, brings out the best in believers. You can look at it from another angle. If you lack peace, 
What does your prayer life look like? Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which, this is incredible language, passes, surpasses, laps all comprehension, will guard your minds, your hearts, and your minds in Christ Jesus. Three attributes of the peace of God Paul's describing here. It's a divine peace, the peace of God. It comes from God. It transcends knowledge. It's beyond all comprehension. It surpasses the ability to understand. It also will guard your thinking and your feelings. Look at that, your hearts and your minds. That's how we think and how we feel. These three reasons are why prayerful people are peaceful people. Remember, if you lack peace, what does it reveal about your prayer life? Can we all confess something together? It's easier to worry than it is to pray. It's more intuitive to worry than it is to pray. It is less effort to worry than it is to pray. But don't think that that ease should prevent us from running to God in prayer with every concern, every pain, every uncertainty, every fear, every financial strain, every physical ailment. Think of this. The almighty creator God of the universe waits right in this moment expectantly for you to come into his throne room Unannounced, no appointment to meet with him and talk to him. God is waiting for you in prayer as if you are the only person alive on the planet. That's the attention he'll give you. What a gift, what an opportunity, and oh, what we miss if we don't run to him in prayer. Be glad, be humble, don't worry, pray purposefully. We bring specifics to the Lord in prayer. All the things that are concerning us, all the things that are bothering us, every supplication. Next, think rightly. Think rightly. I must confess, there was a great temptation for every one of these points to be a sermon and to make this a six-week sermon, but I think it, it really stitches together and serves our soul well all together. Think rightly. Think rightly. Finally, brethren, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good reputation, good repute, If there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things. In order to understand this text, you really need to reverse engineer it. Go to the end, grab the command, and come back to the beginning. Look at that last command. Dwell on these things. Think about these things. Literally, let your mind think about these specifics. Ultimately, sinful anxiety and fear are the result of thinking about things without God in your equation. Sinful anxiety, sinful fear, the results of thinking about things without God 
in the equation. You take God out of a Christian's worldview, you take God out of a Christian's equation, and we'll all despair. And we would have every reason to despair. One of my favorite sentences I've ever read in any book that's been helpful to me was a little essay in the book called The Thought of God and an essay called The Thought of God by Morse Roberts. This is what he says. The degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends upon his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. Let me read that again. The degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends upon his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety, end quote. What a thought. If a believer can keep this in mind, no evil in this world can steal our peace. So dwell on these things. What things, Paul? He gives us a list. Again, we could spend lots of time here. Let's just summarize them. Whatever is true, think about, dwell on what is true. Not, that, that means facts, not, not conspiracies, not Facebook posts, not what your brother or your brother-in-law or your, your cousin who is an official who works at the White House says. These are facts, bedrock facts in Scripture about God. But they are also facts in the world. Be careful who you listen to because the sources that are telling us all manner of conspiracies don't agree. We do know who always tells the truth. And that's our Lord and His Word. Think on what's true. Don't think about what could happen. That's worrying about tomorrow. Think about what is happening in your life right now and what God is doing in it. Secondly, what's honorable? These are noble things, virtuous things. This is a time when we can take spiritual inventory in our heart to think about good things to think about. Character issues, aspirations, thinking about becoming a different and a better person because of this. Think about right things. These are things that are just. What is right and just, what brings about justice Pure things, boy, this is an important one. Things that are holy, especially related to sexual purity. Now, this is not the time for this lesson, but I think all of us, if we've read the the headlines, understand that this is not the time for pornography as, as Italy has actually suggested. This headline came across my news feed this last week, an Italian uh, headline Pornhub uh, Porn offers quarantine Italians free access. What a horrible, horrific enterprise. In response to this, John Piper wrote, Pornography during the coronavirus is like a person sentenced to a house arrest because of arson setting his own house on fire. We think about pure things, holy things, things in the Word. Lovely, he says, lovely things. Things that look 
lovely to others. We think about ways that we can love others and, and build up one another and serve one another. That's the love here of good repute. Thinking in a way so as not to offend our reputation as believers ought to be those who are confident in God, not the worry warts running around, wringing our hands, wondering if God has abdicated his throne. Then lastly, excellent and praiseworthy things. They, they are tandem together. Wholesome things and those things for which God can be praised. You want to have a great night? Why don't you get together tonight before you go to bed with your family and just list the things that you can be thankful for that God is doing in his world and in our lives. Oftentimes uh, at our church, we, we kind of default back to what we studied in Romans 5 in any point of anxiety and uh, difficulty, we should ask ourselves three questions, right? What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I know? And, and the, the, the direction of that, the polarity of that thinking is, is important. What do I feel? Well, we all feel nervous, afraid, anxious, scared about what's going on. Uh, what do I think? If we base our thinking on the way we feel, we're going to be in despair. We're going to think bad and wrong thoughts. But we have to get to that third question. What do I believe? What do I know? What is my theology? What is God like? What has he done? What is he doing? How can I trust him? What is his disposition toward us? So that we begin to reverse that. What do I know and believe influences what I think and then it controls how we feel. Paul says this will guard your minds and your hearts, your feelings and your thinking we think correctly and then lastly a sixth part of a sure remedy for a troubled soul be glad be humble don't worry pray purposefully think rightly learn contentment learn contentment now this is a larger section that demands a a sermon by itself but i do think it's important attached to what paul just instructed the philippians he becomes he, he shifts from the commands to his own testimony He says, the things in verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, that's a a lot of observation, practice these things. In other words, I have put to to practical application what I'm encouraging you to do. And the God of peace will be with you. See how it's stitched together with this previous passage? But I was glad. I rejoiced in the Lord. He did it himself greatly. That now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. He saw reasons to be thankful in the lives of the Philippians. He was glad in the Lord. This is an application, a testimony that Paul himself had done what he just told the Philippians to do. Not that I speak from lack or want, for I have learned, look at this, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. You want to follow Paul's lead? There's a sentence to memorize. Paul said, I've learned to be content. Don't miss the fact that it didn't come instinctively. It didn't come intuitively. Contentment was something Paul had to learn and something we need to learn as well. What are you talking about specifically, Paul? See how apropos this is to our condition. I know how to get along with humble means, with financial strains. I also know how to live in prosperity with no question about 
what I'm going to eat and where I'm going to sleep and what I'm going to wear. In any and every circumstance, here he comes again, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, abundance and need. Both of having abundance, suffering need. Now we hear him say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul says, I'm experiencing affliction. I'm in jail. This is not a pleasant circumstance for me. But he found reasons to be thankful in their ministry to him. He found reasons to be thankful in the nearness of the Lord. He was glad in the Lord. He practically put to to application all that he just told the Philippians. And he learned, the lesson that he learned about contentment is in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, almost all of us have felt and will feel the financial strains during this time. Our family is. We're making choices right now that we, we had no idea we'd have to make a week, a month ago. It's, it's scary for all of us. When Paul says that he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength, who undergirds him, who builds him up, he's not talking about scoring touchdowns or making goals. He's simply saying that he has learned to live with abundance as well as to live with great need. Even going hungry. Look back to verse 11. Not that I speak from want. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. There is the lesson. There's where happiness comes. There's where gladness comes. There's where perspective is forged. So what do we do? Be glad. Be humble. Don't worry. Pray purposefully. Think rightly. Learn contentment. I just jotted a few takeaways that maybe you can talk to your family about. First is this. Thank God for the time we all have at home. I know this doesn't apply to everyone. We have some, some healthcare workers, for example, some, some in the service industry who are working overtime. But, but for many of us, we have extra time at home that we didn't have before. Thank God for that time and use it. Turn the television off and talk. Pick up the phone. If you live alone, pick up the phone and give a call to someone who needs the encouragement that you can provide and who can give you the encouragement that you need. Secondly, pray for those who are serving all of us. Pray for those who are servants. By that, it's, it's the medical uh, in, uh, community. It's the service industries who are working overtime in this crisis to get us food and, and gasoline and, and auto repair shops and and plumbers and people who don't have the, the ability to work at home. By the way, our, our, um, our governor has said that those are industries that he wishes to continue with faithfulness. She wishes to continue with faithfulness. Pray for your spiritual leaders, those whose work has increased exponentially. Your pastors, your elders, your deacons, your care group leaders... <laughs> I was telling someone, this last week, my schedule, at least when I look at my calendar, 
has never in recent memory, in, in long memory, looked as clear as it was, and I've never been busier at the same time. So pray for us as we try to extend God's grace in shepherding the flock remotely, technologically. Thirdly, use your time at home to read. You know, I was thinking about this, sitting at my desk at home last night. I was looking at two books that I picked up in recent months that I wanted to read. And and I'm sure, I I am absolutely confident, all of you have a book or two or seven or 12 on your bookshelf that you picked up at one point and said, I want to read that. And it stayed with the book, with, 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 with the pages still stuck together on your desk. What a great time to read. Stop watching 24 hour news and look to God and his truth. Fourthly, listen to the right sources and don't spread misinformation. I think we need to be good stewards as Christians, not to be spreaders of misinformation and uh, disseminators of fear. If people talk to you and they walk away from the phone call or from the conversation more afraid than they have confidence in the God that you love and serve, we've not applied this passage. So at the end of our conversations, are people more concerned about the situation or more confident in the God we know? That's the question we have to ask and apply. Just two more. Fifth, use technology to connect. Use technology to connect. We need to serve one another, care for one another, care for our neighbors physically and and in the church, in the body of Christ. All of us have telephones Use them to check up on each other. Check in on your neighbors around you and your neighborhood as well. Let's be what we are called to be, lights in the world. What a terrible testimony if the world looks at us as the most fearful, as the least confident, as the most unsure. We need to say we know God and what he's doing and we have confidence in him. Lastly, this might seem kind of odd. Wash your hands. In other words, be wise. Wash your hands. Maintain distance. I hate the term social distance. Maintain physical distance so that we can care for one another, but don't lose social interaction, especially ministry. Alec Motyer, in his really excellent commentary on Philippians, said this, Public problems require private solutions most of our problems are pretty public right now but the solutions are in our heart before the Lord your peace your path forward will be paved in quiet private times with your Bible open and your heart crying out to God